Thank you, Deacon Susan. A very good morning, ARPC at Bishan. I'm Pastor John Wong. My wife, Perlene, and I are OMF uh, missionaries. And together with our daughter, Jane, and uh, son, Yen, as a family, we were sent out by ARPC back in 2011 to the Philippines to reach out to a particular people group in the South. We have since been back for our home assignment uh, last June. So before I begin my sermon, allow me to pray. Let's go to God in prayer. Open your word to our hearts, Lord, and our hearts to your word. Give us grace to receive it, to understand it, and to obey it. We ask this for your glory and our joy. In your name we pray. Amen. The title for this morning's sermon is Knowing God's Word, Give God His Due, based on Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 44. Now, you can find the outline in the e-bulletin. For the title and the outline, I must acknowledge Justin Mote, who wrote the leader's manual for Read, Mark, Learn on the study of the gospel according to Mark. In other words, it's all from him, not mine. In our church uh, Bible study on Mark so far, we have read Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem on a donkey with shouts of Hosanna in the highest, followed by the Markan sandwich or burger, if you like, of the cursing of the fig tree with judgment on Israel and its temple in the middle. Then there's a series of challenges from the Jewish religious leaders questioning Jesus' authority, of which today we'll continue to notice it carries on. Now, let me relate a story. It's back to the, the year 2011. A few months just after we first arrived in the Philippines, I was told I must personally appear before the immigration judge at the Bureau of Immigration in Manila to get our missionary visa processed and approved. Now, a few days prior to my flight up to Manila from the south for this purpose, I've been reading news report that they will be enforcing the requirement of being properly attired when appearing before a government official such as the immigration judge. They have been having this requirement for the longest time. But guess what? They have not been enforcing it. So naturally, I was not so concerned about it. Besides, I believe I was properly attired in my collared polo tee, Bermudas, and my Crocs sandals. But guess what? They started enforcing the requirement the very day I arrived at the Bureau of Immigration. And my interpretation of being properly attired, well, it fell short, pun intended, of the requirement of long pants and covered shoes for men. So I was not allowed entry beyond the check-in point at the building's entrance, no matter how much I pleaded with the security. Thankfully, I was driven there by a dear Filipino missionary friend 
whom I address as my Kuya, meaning older brother. I believe it was God's grace that Kuya Jun was in the right attire of long blue jeans and leather shoes. Desperate times call for desperate measures as both Kuya Jun and I went into the back seat of his car and I quickly changed into his blue jeans and leather shoes while he wore my Bermudas and Crocs. Now, with a completely different set of attire, I was allowed in and I could proceed on to the second floor to appear before the judge. Having honoured him with my fitting or proper attire, I was given his approval for a missionary visa application. What's the lesson learned here? It's not enough to know the law of the land. You need to interpret it correctly as well as obey it. But when you fall short of the standards, be willing to humble yourself and ask for help to change into a fitting attire entirely not your own in order to present yourself blameless before the judge and to give him the honour that is due to him. That's why it connects with this morning's title, No God's Word, in other words, No God's Requirement or Standards, and Give God His Due Glory and Honour. No God's Word, God Raises the Dead. We can turn off the slide. In verse 18, Mark has told us the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Their question to Jesus is based on the Leverite law laid down by Moses in Deuteronomy 25, where it says the brother of a deceased man is obliged to marry his brother's widow so that she will bear a son to his deceased brother. This is in order that his family line, the deceased brother's family line, as well as his name, will not be lost. Its aim was to ensure no family, family line dies out and the widow being kept for. Now it's just like us Chinese in the olden days desiring to have a son, ensuring our clan or our tribe will continue. And so they laid out the scenario before Jesus. Seven brothers married to the same woman, one after another, in succession after their death. The question they posed to Jesus, in the resurrection, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, before we proceed further, you may be asking what's the intent behind their questions. Obviously, their real intent was to get Jesus into trouble, to let him be the one to deny the law or the resurrection. Either way, Jesus will be in trouble with the crowd. Now, knowing the Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, Jesus chose to quote the burning bush account recorded in the second of the five books, Exodus chapter 3, verses 
6. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise, raised from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Oh, the clicker is okay. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, do you notice that Jesus emphatically pronounced that the Sadducees were dead wrong? In fact, he said it twice at the beginning and at the end. Reason? If they had truly understood or known God's word, they would have believed the power of God to raise the dead. For when God revealed his name to Moses, he was speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense. God didn't say, I was the God of your fathers, but rather I am their God. Meaning that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive in Moses' day. The, the Sadducees were wrong because there is resurrection and by implication, judgment as well. As to the Leverite law, it will not be broken at the resurrection since there will be no marriage and there's no need to worry about continuing the family line or name. Now let us pause for a moment and think. How about you and I? Do the way we live shows that we believe in the resurrection? That we believe in the coming day of judgment? Or do we live like there's no tomorrow, just like the Sadducees, who does not believe in the afterlife? Are we being carried away by the pleasures of this world or the worries of our earthly existence? Or are we holding fast to our eternal hope in Christ Jesus, believing in God's word that He is able to raise the dead? Let's move on. Give God His due. Love God. Love others. Next, we come to another question, this time from one of the scribes who, unlike the Sadducees, believe in the resurrection. Which commandment is the most important of all? Now, there seems to be a deliberate echo here by Mark, back to chapter 10, where a certain rich young man had asked Jesus this question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember, he was wrongly confident that he had kept the commandments required by God since his youth. But he went away sad when told by Jesus to sell all he had and give to the poor in return for treasure in heaven and follow him. Then Jesus taught the disciples that with man is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. What's the meaning here? 
What is Jesus saying? No one can do anything right all the time. Least of all, keep all the commandments to gain eternal life. But yet there's hope because God alone can do the impossible by becoming a man, perfectly keeping all the commandments and offering himself on the cross so that you and I can gain eternal life, can gain salvation through him. So let us come back to now how Jesus answered the earlier question. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This can be summarized by this phrase, I'm all in. What Jesus is saying that you are to be all in in terms of your commitment, in terms of your attitude of giving God what is rightly due to Him. It can be expressed also by the following statement. Showing your love to God by loving towards your fellow man who bears the very image of God and starts fulfilling the Ten Commandments. The scribe then affirms the answer Jesus gave him by adding this phrase. Okay, trying to get used to it. Okay. To love God or love Him and to love one's neighbor is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This then led to Jesus' commendation of Him for having answered wisely. Now you may ask, how is it this commendation from Jesus? Well, this scribe clearly saw that the temple rituals such as burnt offerings and sacrifices are all empty before God if they are not accompanied by a heartfelt love for God and neighbour. So it seems like the scribe had fed way better than rich young men. For Jesus to command you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now I must say, I've tried to comprehend what Jesus meant by the phrase, not far. Could it be that he's very close to understanding the truth of God's salvation plan? That he's closer to understanding this? That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. True redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, 24. And this means acknowledging our human inability to meet the impossible standard of loving God and loving our neighbour. Recognising the inability of religious rituals to save us. In other words, the only way to be saved is to cry out to God for mercy and to look to Jesus whom we must love wholly, humbly pleading, I believe, help my unbelief. Next, know God's word, Christ will reign. Now the Jewish religious leaders so far have been the one challenging Jesus' authority, right? Guess what? It's now Jesus' turn. He's turned to question the authority and their understanding of Scripture 
by raising a question of his own. How can the scribe say that Christ is the son of David? Now, this question suggests to us that the scribes may have been teaching that Christ, a.k.a. the Messiah, is to be no more than a mere man. In fact, the son of David is to be considered less than David. Yes, the Messiah will be great, but in an understanding of the scribes, not as great as King David, his ancestor. Now, to correct their error, Jesus draw their attention to what David said in Psalms 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, the first word, Lord, refers in Hebrew, Yahweh, God's covenant name. And the second word, Lord, in Hebrew means Adonai, Master or Lord. In other words, David himself is calling the Messiah Lord. So it shows that the scribes are wrong again. Now, by quoting the first verse of Psalms 110, Jesus has in mind the understanding of the whole Psalms, the whole seven verses. So allow me to put it up for us, as in the summary. So verses 1 to 3, it speaks of Yahweh's chosen Messiah who sits on his right hand as king to rule over his enemies. And in verses 4 to 7, announces Yahweh's unchangeable oath that his appointed or anointed king will likewise be an eternal priest of the people and will execute his judgment among the nations. Clearly, the coming Messiah spoken of here is far greater than David. For Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, will reign as our eternal priest and king and will bring his judgment upon the nations. Next, give God his due. Trust your life to Jesus. Now, Jesus goes on to warn about the religion of the scribes by saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue, synagogues and the place of honour at feasts, who devour widows' houses or for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now, the scribes love to draw attention to themselves, desiring honour and praise of men, both in the marketplaces as described by this passage, and as well as their religious places, the synagogues. Being teachers of the law or God's word, actually they should have known better than to want the honour that is rightly only due to God alone. Outwardly, they appear pious. They appear spiritual, in fact, with their long prayers. But however, in verse 40, Mark points out their hypocrisy, revealed by their greed in devouring widows' houses. 
In fact, for the love of money, these scribes have chosen to disobey God's command to love their neighbour and to do justice to these little ones such as the widows and to be really doing justice to the aliens as well who have come to worship at the temple court which they have turned into a den of robbers. And that's why Jesus assured that they will receive the greater condemnation. And so, this is something that we must examine for ourselves. Are we like them? Are we like the scribes? Now we come to the last section of our text. We see Jesus seated opposite the temple treasury, observing people putting money into the offering box. Now, I must say there are lots of people who are wealthy at that time where Jesus observed giving large sums of money. But Jesus knows that they are just giving out of what they feel they can spare. In other words, loose chains, loose coins. In contrast, a poor widow was giving everything to God. And that's why Jesus called attention of his disciples to want to teach them the example of this poor widow saying, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. Brothers and sisters, clearly the widow exemplifies for us what it means to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. It is that I'm all in attitude and commitment to God. Now, though the two copper coins may be not much, but for the poor widow, it was everything that she had to live on. Can we see that hers was a true sacrifice while the rich people had not even begun to give at her level of sacrifice. Here was a widow in need of charity herself, but yet she was rich towards God in her giving. My brothers and sisters, she had lived out Jesus' model of discipleship that he had taught in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. Allow me now to recap and sum up. We know from God's word that there is resurrection, for God has the power to raise the dead to life. For Jesus himself said in John chapter 11, verses 25 to 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes, or everyone who lives and believes in me, shall never die. We also learn that we cannot meet God's impossible standard of a 24-7, I'm all in attitude and commitment of loving God and loving our neighbours. In fact, there's no number of religious activities or programs or rituals that can save you and I. The only way of salvation is to cry out to God for mercy found in Christ alone, pleading, I believe, help my unbelief. And that Jesus is our chosen Messiah from God, who is far greater than David, 
For Jesus is the eternal priest and king for all those who call on him as Lord and Saviour. For he alone will return to judge. So let us, my brothers and sisters, allow God's word to examine our hearts and allow it to penetrate our lives. Let us daily confess our sins before God and before another, saying no to our acts of hypocrisy, to our sinful attitude of selfishness, but instead seek to serve one another with the love of Christ. Let us be radical in our self-denial, trusting in the transforming power of our Saviour who is at work in us and will bring it, bring it to completion when He returns. Brothers and sisters, all money, wealth belongs to God. Let us use them to serve God and not ourselves. All our talents, abilities belong to God. As believers, God owns us twice over. He, was, he is our Creator and He is our Redeemer. Our lives belong to Him. We are but stewards. We are but the tenants of the vineyard where God is our Master. Students, your studies, your results belongs to God. For we are to live for Christ alone, not for ourselves. For that will be vain glory. Indeed, how wonderful it is that our only worries should be putting in our best effort to please a loving Master and Saviour who knows our weaknesses but yet accept us as we are. Put your anxieties aside. Trust in God. Parents, our children are given by the Lord for us to lovingly care for and disciple in the way of the Lord. Are we spending that required time with them? Remember, Jesus is not looking at the amount of effort or talent, but our generous heart, firstly to God, then to others. For we owe our Lord and Saviour a debt of love we could never fully repay, except to, with gratitude in our hearts, live our lives as a daily living sacrifice that is pleasing before Him. For Jesus has paid it all, and by His blood, His crimson blood, has redeemed us for Himself. And so we can live with joy and gratitude before Him, clothed with His glory, with His holiness, presented blameless before God. With full confidence, we can live for Him. Even though at times we keep falling short, but we have a Redeemer, always willing to forgive, always willing to encourage us to live for Him and Him alone. Because knowing God's Word, that's what it means. It means that we live for Him, for His glory, which is rightly due to Him. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord Jesus, we can only live and stand before you by your grace and mercy. We can only come before you with nothing to boast. 
but only to acknowledge we are your unworthy servants. For in many ways we fall short of what you desire of us. We are unable to achieve that I'm all in quality in our lives, in loving you. But yet, Lord, you have called us to it. And to help us, you have given us your spirit, your word, your instructions to pray, to study your word, and to obey. And your spirit abide in us that daily we'll be increasingly becoming more like you by your grace, by your strengthening. That we'll be changed from one, one degree of glory to another until we're all changed into your full likeness when we see you in heaven. So Lord Jesus, we pray that you'll grind it to our hearts that we'll always be humble and broken before you boasting of nothing in ourselves, but instead always looking to you in joyful hope and faith for what you have done for us and for, for what you are continuing to be at work in us and will make us to be one day. That we may reflect your glory being like you so that our lives be seen by all men and so draw them to yourself and crown you in their lives as their reason king as well. We ask all this in your most precious name. Amen.